This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 3rd, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week I'd like to talk about a couple of news items. First, according to reports, the U.S. government is changing its stance on boosters. Instead of recommending a fourth vaccine dose, the government is now suggesting that people at lower risk wait until the fall to receive that next vaccine dose. And this was accompanied by the announcement that new vaccines that contain antigens derived from the more recent BA4, BA5 strains will be available somewhat earlier than originally projected, millions of doses perhaps available in mid-September. So what's the logic behind all of this? Steve, I suspect the logic has to do with the decreased efficacy of the current vaccines and boosters for the strains that are circulating right now. Now, it's important to start with this message that boosters do seem to decrease the risk of severe disease. And that's very important. They continue to save lives. However, their effect on preventing infection is very limited right now, given the mismatch between the strains and the vaccine. And the effect, whatever it is, is relatively transient. And even early on, before the current strains were circulating, we saw that the protective efficacy against infection only lasted for weeks at best. There's also a theoretical concern that if we boost too often, there might be a poor response to a vaccine. And so therefore, not getting vaccine right now will allow a better lag time when the new vaccines are available, which we hope will be September. There's a huge caveat to this, though. We don't know that these new vaccines will actually perform better. By the time we get there, we will have safety data with those vaccines, but we won't have any real efficacy data, perhaps a little bit of immunogenicity data, and we can measure how well antibodies induced by these new vaccines are neutralizing whatever viral strain is circulating. But that's also an important point. We don't know which strains will be circulating at the time, so we don't know how well the antigens will match those viruses. So Eric, you're pointing out a lot of the challenges we're facing, which is science in real time. And as we watch the virus evolve, we are determining how best to respond to that to augment protection or immune responses. And the question that I think the FDA, our industry colleagues, our academic colleagues, our public health colleagues, the science community is really struggling with is how do we think about how many boosters over what period of time affords the best protection? An interval is an important feature which allows immune maturation, affinity maturation. So there is some value in having some degree of an interval to allow the immune response to improve. There also is the issue of how do we match, as you said, Eric, to the circulating strain. We all have some familiarity with that with influenza, where every year we are hopeful that the vaccine moved forward is more closely matched to the circulating flu strain. This is a greater challenge when we have continuous circulation of a virus, SARS-CoV-2, and its continued evolution with a particularly big evolutionary event last November, December, with the emergence of the Omicron variant 
and its subsequent evolution over the last six, seven months, thus raising the question of the value of an Omicron sequence in the boosting vaccine. And then when we think about an Omicron sequence, is it the original Omicron, BA1, as we often call it, or the currently circulating BA4-5, currently in most jurisdictions? But what will be circulating in October, November, December is hard to predict possibly more closely related to the BA45 series, but difficult to predict. As the virus emerges, it will mutate to enhance its circulation in the face of community immunity. One other piece, Steve, just my external insight into what the FDA and developers may be doing, is now that we have an mRNA platform and other technologies, but mRNA in particular, that is able to adapt very quickly. So with a new sequence, one can have a new vaccine available for clinical study and community deployment within a few months. That now raises the issue of how quickly should we be adapting our vaccines to the circulating strain and how comfortable are we with the safety of the platform and the implications of the immunogenicity that the new vaccine, whatever variant is in the new vaccine, the implications of the immunity it elicits likely being protective given our increasing understanding of correlates of protection and how vaccines can elicit immunity and that is likely to protect. So several moving parts there, but there are strong rationale for different threads of evidence that come together to help inform our collective policy. I agree with you, Lindsay. I emphasize the fact that necessity is driving invention here. We need to make a decision. It's not as if there can be no decision about when to give vaccines and what vaccines to give. And these are the decisions being made. I think there is room for debate as to whether or not they're the best decisions. And there certainly is vigorous debate within the scientific community. But I think the bottom line is we have to make choices. And I think part of those choices implied in your comments, Eric, are as new tools emerge, how do we weave them together? And so the ability to have Omicron-specific vaccines on mRNA platform creates the possibility for a certain public health approach. The emergence of protein vaccines that are getting authorized allows thinking about how to use these vaccines in combination. The data are not robust in combination vaccines, but the scientific rationale is very strong. So it would not surprise me that more data emerge over the next six to 12 months that further inform and guide our policy. But as you point out, Eric, we have to make decisions for September and October now with the tools that are available to scale at that time. Given these changing recommendations from public health authorities, what should clinicians advise their patients? Well, Given where we are now, I think that most patients can safely wait. That's as long as they have received the primary series and a booster dose. There's a huge difference between receiving the two doses of the mRNA vaccines and receiving a third dose, because it does seem that that third dose really enables high levels of protection against severe disease. The fourth dose adds something, but it adds quite a bit less, at least in the measures that were taken a bit earlier in the outbreak. So I think that it's 
okay for people who've received at least three doses to hold off. That rule, of course, doesn't apply to people who are unvaccinated, who never received any boosters, or who are at particularly high risk of disease and haven't received a fourth dose, either because of comorbidities or because of the likelihood of very high rates of exposure to the virus. So just reflecting on my clinical practice over the last month or two with patients at high risk for disease progression, as I care for many patients who have weakened immune systems at the cancer center who receive immune modulators, such as B-cell depleting agents. It's very challenging. And part of what my conversation with my patients is, this is a rapidly evolving field. And so as a provider, I'm enlisting my patients to be partners in the uncertainty because we have tools today that we did not have three months ago, which is terrific. But those tools are still being understood as to how best to deploy them. And that gets to the issue of additional doses of vaccine. As we think about what might be available in October, we do have to counsel our patients that there's uncertainty there as to what will be available. We have to weigh the risk based upon an individual's patient risk for progression to severe illness, such as our patients with weakened immune system or other vulnerable patients, with what the local transmission is. And if there's substantial local transmission, then that immunologic vulnerability is that much more concerning. And then we have to think about the role of other tools such as monoclonal antibodies in protection for those who have the weakest immune systems. So I think it's a partnership with our patients to help them understand how lucky we are to have these options to prevent severe illness, but how frustrating it is that the data are in process and not perfect the way we like them and that we have to weigh the uncertainties of the viral transmission with the tools available today and those that we hope will be available shortly. Changing topics. Last week, we touched on the current monkeypox outbreak. And when it comes to the treatment of this disease, there are some broad parallels to what happened at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. Among them is the availability of drugs whose efficacy hasn't really been tested. For example, the drug Tecoviramat is approved for the treatment of smallpox, but not for other orthopox viruses. Instead, the drug has only been available through what's called a non-research expanded access investigational new drug protocol from the CDC. So what is this drug and how did we get into this unusual situation? Tecoviramat is a small molecule that inhibits orthopox virus envelope proteins and prevents the budding of complete viruses from infected cells. This prevents the onward transmission of infection. It was developed specifically in response to the potential threat of smallpox as a biological weapon. Of course, there's a problem with developing such a drug. Smallpox has been eradicated, and in fact, we don't even use it in the laboratory. That means there was no way to test the drug for efficacy in humans. Instead, Tecoviramat was approved through a mechanism called the animal rule, which means that the only efficacy testing was in infected animals, with safety testing in healthy humans. Thus, we expect this drug to work, but it's never actually been tested in human smallpox. In fact, it's never been used in smallpox at all. All of the animal testing was performed with related pox viruses, such as rabbit pox in rabbits and, somewhat ironically, monkey pox in monkeys. Given that the molecular target of Tecoviramat is shared by all orthopox viruses, it seems reasonable to extrapolate the results. But remember, we don't actually have those clinical observations. 
So Eric and Steve, when Ticoviramat came before the FDA advisory committee, which I serve on some years ago, it was a real challenge to assess its activity without direct human studies, as you suggested, Eric. But there were substantial, and there are substantial data in its activity for other orthopox viruses, separate from smallpox, that allows insight into the virologic activity. And if one thinks the activity against a pathogen, a virus, is a property of the drug and the pathogen, then one can extrapolate that if ticoviramat works against monkeypox in monkeys, it has meaningful activity against monkeypox with clinical benefit in that model. Therefore, one would expect it to work against monkeypox in other hosts. However, when you move to another host, you have to weigh carefully species-specific factors such as PK and PD of those drugs or this drug in the new host, the human, to be able to anticipate if you're likely to have meaningful concentrations at the site of exposure or replication, as well as expand safety data. And here, there were a series of human studies that have been done that define the PKPD and safety in people, but without the efficacy signal, given the lack of monkeypox being studied previously. So I think we have a strong rationale with in vitro and in vivo activity of ticoviramat against monkeypox and strong PKPD data to strongly suggest that it should be active in human cases. But as you say, Eric, we very much need proper studies to know that it does work in people because there are assumptions here that need to be tested. So what is your answer to that question? We have a rather large international outbreak of monkeypox. We have a drug that might work against it, but that's never been tested. Is it more important to be rolling it out as widely as possible or to test it to determine whether it's really efficacious? I know that you've both written about the topic of research during outbreaks. What do you think is right at this point in this case? So Steve, as you point out, we've been dealing with the issue of how do we study new medicines in the middle of an outbreak? And this was a tremendous challenge during Ebola. And what we learned during Ebola was that it's a false choice to say we can't take care of patients and advance science. We have to be careful not to assume that we know the answers. And we also have to better define efficacy and safety and outside of randomized trials that's very difficult to do. So one needs to carefully design studies where one can develop randomized control data to understand if something works, in this case, ticoviramat against monkeypox, to better define its safety and efficacy and where it works best. But we can also provide it in extreme cases to try and ameliorate severe illness when there are little other options. And so it needs to be balanced with the clinical need, the risk of the infection, and how we can most efficiently develop high-quality data to inform use. In developing high-quality data, we have to think carefully about the endpoints we care about and what's measurable in the given illness, but also when and how we use it. Pre-exposure prophylaxis is different than post-exposure is different than early treatment or late treatment. And these are all things that have to be thought about carefully. And we have to think about it 
in the context of availability to the communities who need it most, both locally and globally. And so I think we can do both. I think we can roll it out in the most severe cases while we study it in milder cases to determine efficacy and safety properly. I agree entirely with Lindsay. It's very difficult to have a drug that you feel might be efficacious and not offer it to a patient. At the same time, those with mild disease in monkeypox are at low risk of developing severe disease or dying. So the consequences are not that great. We were faced with this at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, as you said in your preface, Steve. And there are a lot of physicians who felt that drugs that were available off the shelf were going to be efficacious and prescribed them widely. When we eventually tested them, unfortunately, we found out that they weren't efficacious. So I think we're doing the right thing for our patients, particularly those with mild disease at relatively low risk, if we work with them to learn about what the best therapies are. Eric, I just want to amplify that we need to actually define the efficacy and what that efficacy in human infection is and not presume that we know it. And we need to understand that in the context of safety, because there is no medication that does not have side effects. So we always need to understand the side effects in relation to the benefit so that patients and providers can have thoughtful conversations about proper treatment. And that, I think, is incredibly important for us as a community to be able to do in the context of an outbreak. And we've had years now where we have been doing that. So it is definitely possible, and we just need to do it. Throughout the COVID-19 epidemic, we faced the issue of global equity. So looking at monkeypox, what's the availability of therapies against monkeypox in Africa? So Steve, I think the availability of antivirals such as Ticoviramat or Cidovivir or Brincidovivir in Africa is nil. The availability of vaccines such as the MVABN vaccine that's being deployed in the U.S. and elsewhere is also nil. And I think we need to think carefully about global equity for several reasons. One, as we've learned with COVID, things spread everywhere and it is our moral obligation to treat it everywhere, and it is good for the global community to control outbreaks at their source. We all benefit. So we need to scale up treatments for where the infections are active and to prevent further infection where the technologies afford us that opportunity. And this gets back to the earlier point, Steve, about high-quality scientific data such as randomized trials or well-done case control trials associated with rollout. By developing evidence of efficacy and safety, then one can go to funders to fund therapies for the elsewhere in the world. It is harder to argue for funding of therapies when you don't have evidence demonstrating the safety and efficacy. There are many therapies people think and hope will work. We need to have data to show that it does work because that allows rational choice, investment, and appropriate deployment during phases of illness that bring out the best benefit. So I think this is all interconnected, Steve, but it is very important for us to think about global control of monkeypox and treatment of it wherever it is emerging, especially in 
sub-Saharan Africa, where there is ongoing transmission for years. So even more important for us to understand how to control it in that setting. I want to echo everything you said, Lindsay. The important reason to do this is because it's fair and equitable. However, the practical benefit is substantial. And in the current outbreak, well, we probably would not be having the current outbreak if we had stopped the disease at its source. So there's a real benefit for everyone to provide prevention and therapy equitably. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.